0: Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Nuntad Amar Aleph by the two dots. The Gemara here is discussing the items enumerated in the Mishnah that have a brocha of Shekucho Gvurato Maleolam, And it goes through each one of them discussing what exactly it is. And now it begins, Vazvaot, Maizvaot? What exactly is this vaot? Amar Goha. It is an earthquake. Ravkatina Havka he was traveling. He reached the doorway of a necromancer. Those that practice the bal of divine with the dead. Right as he reached that point, Gnach koha. There was, as Rashi says here, a major earthquake. That's why you have a duplicate lashon. As Rashi says, vetigash vetir ash. But it was an extremely powerful earthquake. Amar. So, Sounds like he asked this rhetorically. Does the Baalov know why all of a sudden there was an earthquake? Ramalekala all of a sudden he hears a voice from inside of this house that has the necromancy going on inside of it. And says, Katina, You didn't know why? When a Kosh Baruch remembers his children that are in difficult straits Benumoto being dispersed amongst all the nations of the earth. Morid Maoto He has two tears that drop into the Great Ocean. And the reverberations of those tears hitting the water are what causes the earthquake and its felt from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Bainu Goha. And that's the explanation behind an earthquake. Avarab Katina. So responds to the Balov Obadamiot Kadivu. He is a liar this Balov Umile Kadivin and everything that he says is a falsehood. If what he said was true, goha goha mi boyle there should have been two earthquakes because there are two tears. One tier, then a second tier drops, and that should have caused two earthquakes and not one earthquake. Velohi, and the truth is that that's not true, what Rav Katina said. Goa of avi. In essence, there were two earthquakes that took place. Whether he's speaking about an earthquake and it's aftershock, where he's speaking about in the earthquake itself that there's a number of trembles or rumblings that take place. By the low delay, nevertheless, Rav Katina refused to acknowledge that which the Balov was saying. That people didn't start following it thinking that this Balov has the real answers or there's something real about this Balov. And therefore Rab Katina dismissed what it said by saying something that undermined what they were saying, despite the fact that actually that's what had transpired. And the explanation was a decent explanation for what happened in terms of the earthquake. And over here, this Gemara sounds a little more like those positions within the Rishonim that believe that when it comes to these dark forces, that they do have a certain amount of power, and they do have a certain amount of insight. We're not allowed to use them, or they can't bring context to that which they know, and therefore it's not information that's useful to us because it can't be understood properly but nevertheless there is some sort of power or understanding that comes from the balaov but the torah restricts us from doing this as opposed to the more rationalist explanations of like the ibn ezra the rambam who believe that these powers are meaningless they're all a forgery and they are using illusionary tactics to convince people of their powers, but there's nothing real behind them. Over here from the Gemara, it makes it sound like that there is something real to it. And despite the fact that there's something real to it, we don't want people getting caught up in it. And Eva Rav Katina dismisses it. That's more along the lines of like the Ramban and the Radak brings both positions. And if you want to see more detail about it, we discuss it when the Gemara discusses Bala in the Gemara in Sanhedrin. But also you can see the Radak in the Shmuel Aleph when Shaul goes to visit the Balat-Ov in order to get information before he goes to the battle in the Guboa where he dies. Over there the Radak speaks pretty extensively about this issue as to whether there's anything real to the Bal-Ov. Now, Rav Katina Didei Amar, Rav Katina himself gives a different explanation for it. If that's the case, this would sound a little bit more like those rationalist explanations that say that even though the dismissal by Rav Katina Dvalov was not really a true dismissal, nevertheless, he didn't think that was the right explanation. And here, he gives the right explanation, Didei Amar, sopeh kapav. It's when a claps his hands. Shinamar, because it says in the postul Ken Gamani Akei Kapi El Kapi, I will clasp or clap my hands together, and that will relieve my anger. So it is a expression of God's anger being relieved, and that's what the clapping of His hands does, and that clapping of His hands reverberates in the earthquake. That Hashem gives a big sigh, and that sigh is what causes the earthquake, Bring another puzzle from Yechezkel earlier on, where Hashem is speaking about what He's going to do to the peoples of Yerushalayim. And there it says, V'anichoti chamati that I will relieve my anger bam on them, V'hi nechamti, and then I will be consoled. In the other case, the release of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's anger is because He had clapped His hands together. And therefore, H'anichoti is really assuaging of the anger because He's already clapped His hands together. Over here, it's H'anichoti hamiti bam, I relieve my anger on them, which means that they will be the recipients of God's anger, and then, and then I would be consoled, and they're reading, that relief of anger, as a great sigh, that of Kodesh Baruch Hu gives out, and that's what causes the earthquake. Rabonan and the abundance suggests, it's Barakia, so Kodesh Baruch Hu stomping his feet, on the firmament, because it says in the Apostle Fahin Yirmiyahu, and that's in the context of a very negative, by in miyau in Hei, what well, he discusses that I've already been prophesying to you since the time of Yoshua Melech for 13 years now. Now we're in the middle of the reign of Yol And I'm telling you now that Hashem is going to bring terrible destruction. And the post that we quote says over here, Tina Prophesy against them. Et Everything I'm saying, lehem, Hashem God from above is going to roar. Um kolo. And from his holy abode, you will hear his voice. Shaog Ishag al Navehu, he is going to mightily roar on his place. great a great shout like those that are pressing the grapes, Elko and that will be heard by all the inhabitants of the land. And then the next puzzle continues, and noise shall come from the ends of the earth. You see that God is saying something very powerful is about to happen, and the description of it includes this hey, dad, shouting out like the stomping of those that press the grapes. And so then the Gemara correlates that with the stomping on the firmament, which then produces the earthquake, which seems to be somewhat hinted to in the next puzzle, which is that there's a noise or a great noise that goes it comes from the ends of the earth. Ravach, Yaakov, suggests that the earthquake is a result of When God moves his feet or rubs his feet together below his throne, the posuk from Mishayahu that we read on Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. And so when a Kurj moves his feet on the footstool, that again has reverberations that precipitate an earthquake down below. Now, just as a broad comment about this, which is probably true of many of the things that we're going to see on today's DAF, the Gemara knows that the earthquakes are caused by a natural phenomenon. But what the Gemara is trying to understand is, what is the metaphysical cause for that which is a physical phenomenon that takes place in the world? And obviously an earthquake is a destructive force that's unleashed. And so the Gemara sees that associated with the anger of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And so the question that they're discussing or disagreeing about is what is exactly the anger or the pain could be a HaKadosh Baruch Hu is experiencing that is the cause for that destructive force to be released. And so the argument here is about the cosmic implications of physical phenomena, especially destructive ones that take place down on Earth, that they don't come in a vacuum, that they're part and parcel of... Of a greater cosmic interrelationship that precipitates this type of outcome, because a Baruch Hu is trying to send a message, or Kodesh Baruch Hu is upset, Kodesh is angry, and over here the Chachamim are trying to understand which of those items is really the precipitating event for something as destructive as an earthquake. Val Ramim, which is thunder, the Gemara wants to know Maira Amim. Over here, the Maira Ramim is not necessarily what is thunder, but what is the cause for thunder. It has to do with the clouds touching the sphere that's around the earth. This is true here, and we'll see later on in the Gemara, it'll come up as well, which is that the belief at the time by the Chachamim was that there was this fixed either cap or sphere that was around the earth, and fixed into that sphere were the stars or the constellations. And those constellations which stay in place, all the time. They move because the Galgal during the seasons of the year turns and by turning it the constellations move around the earth and therefore you'll see different parts of the constellations on different sides, north or south, east or west during different seasons of the year. But that was all because there was this Galgal or Kipa that covered over the earth that had fixed in it all of these stars. So what the Gemara is suggesting over here is that the clouds that are moving through the sky, either, according to Rashi, brings two explanations. The clouds rub up against, bump up against this galgal, and that's what causes the sound. Or they got caught in the galgal, and the galgal pulls them, and they can't release from it, and that's what causes the sound of the thunder. Shunammar. And then they bring a proof from the posuk in to Kol ra'amecha, your thundering voice, bigalgao, comes in a whirlwind. He'iru birakim tevel, lights up the world with light name. Ragza Vitirash. it trembles and it shakes. So the Gemara sees this as the source for the fact that the kol ra'am, and connects it to the galgao, which in the literal translation means like a whirlwind. But over here, the is connecting it to the Galgal gal that holds the constellations above, and that the sound of the thunder comes from the interaction with the Galgal. Gal. Rabbanan Amrit, the suggests that the thunder is caused by from the clouds pouring or moving water from one to the other. Shnei Mark, they quote the Pesach from Mirmiyahu, speaking about God's great power and creation that he put the world together with, the puzzle before it says, Ose Eretz Mechin Tevel B'Chachmato, He made the earth by His power. He established the world through His wisdom, Utvunato Nata and with His understanding or discretion, He has stretched out the heavens. And then we bring the puzzle here, the Tito Hamon Maim, Nisim then His voice resounds with the great flows of water in the heaven, and He raises Nisim, or clouds, or vapors, it's from the ends of the earth, makes lightning for the rain, and he takes the wind from his storehouse. It's in the context of a thunderous storm, and over there it speaks about the movement of the waters, the great voice, the great sound that is heard by the movement of the masses of water in the heavens. And therefore they associate the thunder with the movement of water from the clouds to different clouds. Barka Takifa Baanana Umitvar de Barzo. So he suggests that the thunder is a result of a very strong or powerful lightning strike on the clouds that breaks off or severs off a piece of ice or hail from the cloud. that the clouds are actually hollow or have holes in them and the wind comes and blows over the openings the and it's similar to the wind that blows on the top of the open barrels or people do this today with bottles if you blow over the top of a bottle it creates a sound similar over here when the wind moves over these hollow parts of the clouds or the openings in the clouds it creates this loud sound which is the thunder and the Gemara says position or explanation seems <laughs> to Mean the most plausible, the barik barko, omenahame anane, ba'ate mitro, because the lightning flashes, the clouds rumble, and then the rain falls or comes down. So that phenomenon of the precipitation coming after the lightning and the thunder is produced or can be explained by what Rav suggests. and on the winds, as Tosfa points out over here, the Roshami says, that you say the brach of koh me'olam, it's only kishibayim Bizam. it's only when you have extreme forms of wind, not when it's typical or regular forms of wind, then you would only say, ase But when these powerful winds come, that's when you say, And the Gemara again says, Similarly the question in the light of what Tosfut says is, What is this type of powerful wind that would require? It's something that comes with hurricane-like force. That type of wind doesn't come at night. We see that it does come at night. It says, Only if it started during the day, and then it continues into the night. So we also have a Mesorah, that a Zafar, a hurricane, won't last persistently for more than two hours. That which it says in the postul, in the context there, it's speaking about the great power of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. and the post quoting is, what are you planning against Hashem? Hashem will obliterate anything in His way. No affliction or difficulty will rise up a second time against the Kodesh Baruch Hu. So this idea that a Kodesh Baruch Hu brings one powerful sweeping wind that does all the destruction that He wants, and it doesn't need to come again. Again says, We see that it does persist for two hours. It says it's only the benu Benyu Only if there's a respite in the interim does that happen. באל ברכим, Omer ברוך שקולח ברותם על אדם. On lightning, you make this bracha. Again, my brachim. What exactly is lightning over here? There are different forms of lightning, and what exactly is the lightning that we're speaking about? What's the lightning that necessitates a bracha on it? Amarava barka. It's a lightning, Rashi says over here, Lashon Mavrik Nahar. Something that lights up. This might be in contrast to what Rashi said in the previous Gemara. There he said barka that split off the ice blocks. He called that brachim shel esh, fiery lightning. And that might have reference to a lightning bolt. If you do say that, maybe Rav is coming to dispel what Rashi said before, which is, you might have thought that you only have to make a bracha on a lightning that is like fire, or that's like a lightning bolt that precedes the thunder, but not the smaller flashes of lightning that come afterwards. And Rav comes along to say that even those smaller flashes of lightning also require a bracha. Vama Ravah. Then Rub also says, Barka Yechida, even a single lightning bolt. ubarka Chivara, or a white lightning. ubarka Yirukta, or a greenish blue lightning. Vananei desalkan, v'keren maravit. Clouds that seem to rise, or go up, on the western corner. V'achin, v'keren dromit, and they come from the southern side. V'tartei ananei desalkan, or two clouds, that seem to either be rising together or bumping into each other, all those are bad omens or simanim, that what's upcoming is not going to be something that is a brocha, but rather destructive. Why does it matter that you know that information? So that you know the daven in advance of what's about to come, because you know that there's impending doom that's ahead. And therefore, maybe you can beseech Hashem to stop it. That's only true if this transpires during the night. If it's happening during the day, late Then there's no problem or it's not an issue. Because, as we're saying here, The clouds of the morning, late They have no real substance to them. Because the posuk in Hosea says, What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? Because your goodness is like a morning mist, or a cloud of the morning that dissipates easily, meaning that your goodness doesn't really have any lasting side to it. And the puzzle finishes off, and like the morning dew that burns off easily, so it's not something that has any lasting side to it, it's ephemeral, and therefore the clouds of the morning are not omens of impending doom, because there's no real substance to clouds isn't there a common saying, if you open up the door in the morning, Mitra, and you see raining outside, lay down your sack, you donkey driver, the Gani and go back to sleep, because you're not going to find any Parnosa out that day, because the produce is going to be super cheap because all the rains give lots of produce and therefore there's no reason for you to ship things from different locations to try to make money from the differential in pricing from one location to another location because everywhere is going to have plentiful or bountiful food everything's going to sell for cheap and therefore there's no reason for you to get out of bed so that makes it sound like there's negativity associated with that rain or those clouds that are seen in the morning It says lokasho Depends how the cloud cover looks. If there's a heavy, stormy cloud cover, then that's no different than the clouds you would see at night. Then if they are these thinner clouds that come out in the morning, then those clouds don't have the same predictive power in terms of telling you that there's something bad or difficult about to happen. Amar of Alexandria, Amar of Yeshua ben Levi, thunder was only created, in order to straighten out, the crookedness of one's heart. (laughs) because the pasuk says, veluki because God created that which is there in order that they be fearful of him. And they see the thunder as being a manifestation of that. The Rashba seems to indicate that that's not only true of thunder, but also true of lightning as well. Those are the types of things that are shocking to an individual. They scare the individual, and therefore they have this impact of engendering fear that helps a person do tshuva or brings a person to doing chuva. Although one could understand why you would focus on thunder because it's something that even though you can't see it, you could suddenly be shocked with that sound of thunder and many times it makes a person jump in their place because the thunder is so loud or so sudden or shocking. So that's the type of thing that causes fear in the person and the point of that fear is constructive fear that it should cause a person to do chuva and straighten out the crookedness of their heart. But there are others who believe that this statement is reflective not only on the thunder, but also on all the items that we mentioned until now. And that might have a nafkimil alocha as to whether the type of thunder you need in order to make a bracha has to be a thunder that's shocking and powerful. Or is it simply any thunder? If thunder is unique in the sense that it's built for straightening out the al then you make a bracha on any thunder. If you believe that it's like all the other items that we mentioned here, then it would only be, in cases like earthquakes, powerful winds, and lightning, all of those items together are things that are powerful and demonstrate great power, and therefore you'd make the bracha v'kohok v'vatom m'alei In that case, maybe you wouldn't make a bracha on small or rolling thunder. And interestingly enough, the of Ram Paskins and Siman Samach Vav, things that you're allowed to interrupt Kriyachma for, as we saw in the beginning of the Masechta, Mapsikim Mipnei Kavod, and there it's talking about Kavod Shel Basar Vadam, then certainly it would be Mafsiq for Kavod Shemaim. And the Marek of Ram sees the thunder and lightning as manifestations of God's Kavod in the world, and therefore one could interrupt the Mero Kriya to say a brocha on lightning or thunder because of that. Rama Rabbi Alexandri, Ben Levi, so we have another Memra from this same pair. Aroeh Etakeshet Baanan. Someone who sees a rainbow in the clouds, zerich Shi pola has to fall on his face. Shinemar. So they quote from the Ma'ase Merkava, which is the beginning of Yeheskel, which is a Gilui Shchina, and it says there about the Gilui Shchina, the vision that Yeheskel has is like a rainbow that you would see in a cloud. Veereh, and then Yechezkel sees this, And I fell on my face. So you would imitate that behavior of Yechezkel, because this is a type of gilu'i And given that there's a gilu'i it should fall on your face. In Eretz Yisrael, they curse people who follow this practice. Because it looks like a person's bowing down to the rainbow. But they do acquiesce that there is validity in making a brocha on the keshet, even though they would not condone bowing down at the time that you see this keshet in the anan. What's the brocha that you make on the Keshet that's in the Anan, that Hashem who remembers the covenant, the covenant here the references the covenant between Akash Baruch Hu and Noach, when he says that the Keshet would be an Ubrit between Akash Baruch Hu and mankind. But in a bright that we have from Rabbi Yishmael, Benoche, Rabbi Yochanel, and Baruch HaOmer, Neiman, bibrito Bekayam, Be'ma'maro, He is faithful, in his covenant and he stands by his word. Amar so as we saw earlier in the Mesech, and we discussed uh, once before, Rapapa is this ultimate compromiser. And once again here Rapapa tries to accommodate everyone and says Hilkah Nimrul We should say both of them. Baruch there's a question as to whether Neman should be with a Vav or without a Vav, and that's a discussion by the Groh in Orachaim with regards to that. The fact that Repopo brings them together means that there must be different aspects, and it's not just a duplication of the same thing, and that Zuchara Brit is different than Nehman v'bito v'kayam be But there are two different aspects over here. One is Zochera brief which is that Akash Barucho remembers the covenant that he has. And that will explain in a second what that means, that the rainbow is indicative of that covenant that was made long ago. But there's also an other aspect of that, which is Nehman v'bito be Mamaro. Not only is this just a sign that there is such a brief but there's an, also an aspect of it that Hashem is faithful in His keeping of this covenant which would imply that the rain that comes at certain times, Hashem is angry enough that He would want to destroy us, or He would want to bring even more. And the rainbow indicates that Hashem has made that covenant, or stands by that covenant, that He won't bring a mabul again to destroy the whole world. And so the rainbow has both aspects of that. And that's reminiscent of that which the Rishonim speak about with regards to the rainbow in Pashat Noach that might relate to what the Eben Ezra and the Ramban say on the Pasuk in Pashad Noach, pasuk Yudbet, where they ask, isn't the rainbow a natural phenomenon? So the refracting of the sunlight through the droplets of the rain and that causes a rainbow to happen. So how could something that's a natural phenomenon be an oath? Can here you could answer like we said before, which is, yes, these are natural phenomenon, but we're trying to explain the metaphysical aspects of these natural phenomenon. So both of them bring over their opinions that the rainbow did not exist from the time of creation, but was added to the creation at that time. And that's what it means, that it's an oath now. It's an oath because God now entered this into the briah that this would be the phenomenon that takes place. Then the Ramban and the Ebenezer both suggest that maybe it was there from the time of creation, but that Akash Baruch Hu just pointed to the rainbow, even though it's a natural phenomenon, as being the oath. That will be the sign that we have this covenant between us, similar to other items or piles of rocks or different things that people put as a siman. It's not the covenant itself. It's just a reminder of the covenant that we have between us and Akash Baruch Hu. And therefore when we see it, we're reminded of the fact that God was kind to us and gave us this covenant and he stands by that covenant. And the Ramban says the reason that that is the sign is because the bow of the rainbow faces away from earth rather than towards earth that's an indication that the arrows are not being shot down rather they're being turned back and therefore Kodesh Baruch is not going to destroy the world now the Gemara moves on to the next section of the Mishnah which are natural phenomena that we say and we don't say olam. and the Gemara says Ato Damran adhashta la all these phenomena that we saw before are they not also shid, baktiv, that which we say every Shabbat Shem made lightning to bring down rain and so Hashem created the lightning so it is a part of the Oseh Maseh Brejit. And so then why would you only make the bracha before and say the group before is kohok vruato olam, distinguished from the group over here, which has Osema maaseh on it. Amar Combine the two sections, and this yes, the brachot apply to both of them. And Rashi concludes on that, valkulam shte brachot alalu. On all of these, you'd make both brachot, both kohok vruato and Osema maaseh meaning that now we're going to combine the two lists together as if they're one big list. Rava amar, over there, by the first list, where it's Koho Grutol Maleolam, you make both brachot, Baruch SheKoho Grutol Maleolam, Oseh Mashe Breshit. In that first list, Hacha, In this latter list, Oseh Mashe Breshit. Ika. There is Mashe Breshit, Maleolam, Leka. And as Rashi explains over here, that's because when you're making a brach on the mountains, you don't see all the mountains. You're seeing one mountain of many mountains. And so yes, that's part of creation. But it's not kohog ruatom olam. It doesn't demonstrate or display the great power of a parochol. Or in essence, as we explained it on the Mishnah, Kohok Vuatomale is something that affects many people or is obvious to many around. Whereas the mountain is a personal experience. When you're there, you're seeing this object, and therefore it's but not kohok ruatom ale. So for Rashi, the Statement of Abaye is that you make both brachot. Ravva says that's only true of the first list, do you make both brachot? In the second list, you only make one Oseh Osema brechit. But nevertheless, even in conclusion, if we pass on like Ravva, for those items in that first list, you would make both brachot of kochogvratomaleilamum Oseh then the Ba'ayev Tosafot explained the Gemara differently, and they say over here that you, it means, oh hi, oh hi. Whichever one you want. And so does the riff say this. The Ishtayim doesn't mean you say both brachot, but rather, either or. So in the first list, you have a choice. You can make the brachot of Or you can make the Osema Sibreshit. The second list, you only have the option to say so the loch of the ta'at says that the Minogolam is to make kohok gvurato on thunder and to make Oseh on lightning. But then the Muggen of Ram says but if thunder and lightning come together then you only make one bracha of Oseh On the other hand based on Rashi and other Rishonim, like the Raivin and the Rashbah, it would seem to imply that both on lightning and thunder, you'd make both brachot. Nevertheless, the Alocha, we only make one bracha on each of them. And the Orca Shulchan just points out that there is this mistaken minhag of people that after they see lightning, they wait to hear a thunder in order to be certain that the lightning is really lightning from a storm and not just result of the heat outside. They then make two brachot. They make the bracha and the Orca Shulchan says based on on what the Ballya Tosphot are suggesting and the way the Taz and the Magan and are explaining, that'd be a bracha levatola. Because once you make the one bracha of Oseh Sebre Reshit or Kokok Gvratom one of those two brachot is motzi both for lightning and for thunder. And therefore it's better to make the Oseh Sebre Reshit, which many believe is associated with lightning and you can't make Kohol Gvratom Versus thunder where you can make the kochogro tomeolam as we saw before because that's the sign of God's power and might be the difference between those opinions that think that the natural phenomenon are made to live shot, akimumot, live Adam. If that's only applicable to thunder, is it applicable to all the other items? And that would maybe create some of this differentiation as to whether you say Kokok Vrath Malayolam by lightning or only by thunder. And therefore he suggests the Arkhashokhan that you should make the Brahva Sema Sebrashit immediately with the lightning. And later on when you hear the thunder you say Kokok Vat Rakia Someone who sees the firmament in its blue and pure state, Omer Baruch Then you make a brocha of Oseh Maseh When is that true? Amar ki ata It's when it's been raining and cloud-covered the entire night. Ube ata istano magliduhu. All of a sudden in the morning a wind comes and clears everything out and all of a sudden you see this clear blue sky. And Rashi claims over here that it's Osema Maseh because shekak haita In the beginning the firmament was plain and clear and only afterwards that occurs will create the clouds that then covered it and therefore you make the brokhah va sema sereshit uplegle der afram ham bar papam christo but that disagrees with this position damaravafram bar papam christa miyom shkhara beit mikdash on the day that beit mikdash was destroyed low near iraqia The they iraqia's never seen its pure state shenamar because the postex says in yeshayahu about the destruction that Hashem is going to bring upon ben the korbanah albish shamayim kadrut heavens will be clothed or cloaked in black. The sakasim ksutam and sackcloth will be their clothing. So you see that the cosmic implications of the Churban are that even the skies or the heavens are mourning over the loss of the Beit HaMikdash and the punishment of Bnei Israel. And therefore, from the time of the Churban you won't have this ability to see it. If that's the case, then you can never make the bracha with Semhaseh sheet because you won't experience it. Tanur Banan, Haro'eh Chama'a one who sees the sun, where it was created. As Rashi notes over here, when the sun is done enough cycles so that it's back to the same place and the same time where it was created. Although the Rebbeinu B'Chai says that Chama'a B'tekufata means the sun at strongest point of the year, which would be the summer solstice, the Tukufat Tammuz, and not Tukufat Nisan. Levana ta. you see the moon, in its full force. It's very, very hard to understand what that means. There is an alternate girsa, which is lavana bitaharata, which some explain to mean that it is the lavana in its fullness, meaning a full moon. And then that might then relate to the khama bitkufata. Chama bitkufata means bring equinox at the time that it was created if it coincides with the full moon, which then makes it that that is accentuates the tidal flows then, because you have both the pole of the sun and the moon at that time. Maybe that's why there is an extra brocha at that time. Others suggest that Levana Bigvurata means the Levana when it's new, which then might be referencing to Birkata Levana that we make each month. And still others suggest that Levana Bigvurata might be something like a supermoon. That's when you make the brocha. Despite the fact that it's mentioned here in the Gemara, whether it means the stars, the planets in their orbits. And the mazalot, when they are in place. Rashi connects all this back to Aroma Chama Bitchufata. There are those like the Shari Tshuva that say, aside from Chama Bitchufata, we don't know the calculations of any of these other items and therefore we don't make Brachot on them. Nevertheless, the Bracha that is made on this is Baruch Ose That is the Bracha that you make because at least with regards to the sun, it's back at the point where it was at creation. Ve'emat How often does this happen and when does this happen? Am rabai, It happens every 28 years. Bahadur makzor. And therefore the cycle comes back. Naflat nisan. The spring equinox. The spring season begins b'shabtai. When Saturn is at the beginning of the day. Be'orta detlat nagi At the end of Tuesday going into Wednesday. So this requires a lot of explanation. The Gemara is referencing the fact that the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the constellations took place on Wednesday, and therefore the assumption is at the beginning of Wednesday it is when it happened. Given that it happened at the beginning of Wednesday, when the sun returns to that point where it was on the beginning of Wednesday, then you make the brach of Hosei which is what we otherwise know as Birkata Chama, that happens every 28 years, which we'll explain in a second. Where exactly the sun was at that moment is also subject to a machloket Rishonim, because are we talking about that moment in Yerushalayim? Or was it the sun in the middle of the sky in Yerushalayim when this happened at the beginning of wherever you think, whether it's six hours east or 12 hours away from Yerushalayim when this began? Again, so this is all figures into how you would calculate where this happened. Rashi gives us some calculation here, which is that there are seven planetary orbits, it's not exactly planets, because included in this list are Chaman, and the sun and the moon, but it speaks about a cycle of these orbits that move seven at a time, and the cycle, as Rashi explains over here, is Shabtai, which is Saturn, Tzedek, which is Jupiter, Maadim is Mars, then Chama is sun, Noga is Venus, Kochav is Mercury, and Levana is the moon. So starting on the beginning of Wednesday, which means Tuesday night, when Wednesday comes in, starting at that time, every hour, one of these planets is in their orbit for that hour. And when the orbit of the Shabtai, Saturn, coincides with the sun's setting on that day, then that's the point of creation. So that moment of creation on Tuesday night going into Wednesday was a spring equinox. So that's Kufat Nisan. So Kufat Nisan, to coincide with the beginning of Wednesday, when the Shabtai is in the orbit then at that sunset, in order for us to do Birkat Levana, we need all of those three events to coincide again. In order to have that happen, you need 28 years, and that's because a solar year is 365 and a quarter days. 364 is divisible by... Seven, which is 52, and then you have a day and a quarter left over. So that means that every year the equinox is pushed off one and a quarter days. In order for you to get back to the point where you have a whole day and Shabtai is at the beginning of that time when you have the equinox, that will take you four years. That's because four times one and a quarter gives you five days. So five whole days means that after five years, you will actually have Shabtai be the beginning of the night time, Saturn be the beginning of the night time, and it'll be the equinox. The only problem is that it won't be on a Wednesday, because it'll be five days later. And five days from Wednesday will land you on the beginning of Monday. But we know that the creation happened on Wednesday. So in order for you to get it back to the same Wednesday at the beginning of the day and be the equinox, you'd have to go another seven cycles to get it back to that original cycle time. So if it takes four years to get it back to the beginning of the day, whereby Shabtai coincides with the beginning of the day and the equinox, it will take another seven times of four year cycles for you to get it back to the point where Shabtai will be at the beginning of a Wednesday, and that will be the spring equinox, and then that would coincide with the original placement of where the sun was at the moment of creation. So given that, it takes 28 years for the cycle to take place in order for you to get the solar cycle to return to the same day, the same time, and the same planetary orbit is there, which is Shabtai. It takes 28 years. So these planetary orbits go in cycles of seven hours. And the one that falls out at the beginning of the night is the one that coincides or is in the same orbit as the sun setting at that point. And then 12 hours later, the sun rises with another one of those planetary orbits. And whichever is 12 hours later will rise with the sun. And then that will be the name of that day associated with that planetary orbit. So the night is associated with one planetary orbit. Or the, the sunset is associated with one and the sunrise is associated with another. And as Rashi points out over here, the acronym for that is Katsnash Khalam. The first week in creation, Mercury was there at the sunset on day one. Tzedek or Jupiter was there on day two, Noga, which is Venus, was there on day three, day four had Shabtai, which is Saturn, which is the one that we're looking for in terms of the creation of the sun, on Thursday it was Chama, the sun, Friday was Levanah, the moon, and Shabbat was Madim, which is Mars. Twelve hours later, when the sun rises, then if you keep this cycle of seven hours, seven hours, which is a cycle of Shabtai, Tzedek, Madim, Chama, Noga, Koko, Levanah, and it over and over again, then you'll see that at the beginning of the sunrise on the first day of creation, Chama was in force, which is sun, and explains why it's called Sunday. On day two, the item that was in force at sunrise was Libana, moon, which explains why it's called Monday, or moon day, or in French lunday for lunar. Then on day three, the planet that was in force at sunrise was Ma'adim, which is Mars, which doesn't relate to Tuesday, but the French is Mardi, because it's the day of Mars. And on Wednesday, the sunrise was with Kohav, which is Mercury. Doesn't relate to Wednesday, but it does relate again to the French, which is Mekredi, which is the day of Mercury. And then on Thursday, the sun rises with Tzedek, which is Jupiter. Again, the English date is Thursday, which is more related to the English or the Nordic traditions. But the Latin traditions, like in French, is Judy, which is again, Jupiter day. And then Friday's, Sun rises with Noga, which is Venus. And again, Friday in English doesn't reflect that, but the French, Vendredi, does reflect that it's Venus Day. And then Shabtai is the one that's in force on sunrise and Shabbat, and that explains Saturday or Saturn. And so the days of the week are actually governed by this these orbits that Rashi lays out over here, not at the sunset, which is the beginning of the Jewish day, but at the sunrise, which is interesting, which is that it's not at midnight when the day turns over, according to this layout of the days, but rather at sunrise they saw the day beginning, which as an aside might have actually have been the battle between the Mitzrim, which worshiped the sun and the sun god, and the daytime, versus the Jewish view, which is the lunar calendar and the start at night, And that might be why the Jews, in opposition and distinction to the Mitzurim, follow the lunar and not the sun, start at night, not during the morning, so on and so forth. There much to say about that, but it's interesting over here, based on what we just showed here, how the names of the week in the secular calendar are related to this same cycle that we're speaking about over here. Now what's interesting about this cycle is that the calculation here uses the view of Shmuel in the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, which is that the solar year is 365 and a quarter days, which is decently accurate, but not perfect. That's why we have a leap year in the secular calendar every four years to make up for that quarter year, like this year where it's February 29th, because of the fact that they need to add in a day to cobble for that quarter. But the truth is that that's not enough because it's not exactly a quarter day quarter day would be six hours, but the actual solar year is really 365 days, five hours and 48 minutes and 45 seconds, which is much closer to the calculation given in the Gemara Rosh Hashanah by Vado, who says that the solar year is 365 days, five hours, 997 halakim and 48 rigayim, which is still about 10 minutes off the actual calculation of the solar year, but is much closer to the calculation than Shmuel. And it is the length of the solar year that we use for the calculation of the interpolation of the calendar to put in the lunar leap years to match up with the solar year. We use actually Rav Ada's calculation, which is more accurate than Shmuel's calculation. So it's interesting over here that when it comes to the Pirkat HaChama, that we use the calculation of Shmuel versus Ravad of there is a possibility that that has to do with who's calculating it. With Birkat that's something that's given to the Hamonam, and therefore they use Shmuel's calculation of the solar year, which is much easier to calculate and understand, and even though it'll be off by a little bit, still it's better to do that so that people can understand the calculation and figure out when Birkat Chama is, versus the issue of the intercalating of the calendar, which is done by Peyton, and there they can do the more complex calculations that uses Ravadas position. Even given Ravada's position, it's off by a little bit, which is actually causing a shift over thousands of years within the Jewish calendar versus the actual seasons and the secular calendar. That's why over many years, there is a shift to the dates falling out later for Yomim Tovim than should be because of that small differential between the actual solar year and the calculated solar year that we use for the intercalating of the calendar. What's also interesting over here is that the Birkat HaChama takes place in Nisan, which is a machlok between Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer and the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah as to whether the world was created in Nisan or created in Tishrei. According to this, we paskin in like Rabbi Yoshua that it was created in Nisan, and that's why we make Birkat HaChama in Nisan. But that then has to be explained why we celebrate Rosh Hashanah in Tishrei rather than in Nisan. And again, that's a much bigger topic, but just something to note over here that Balei and Rosh Hashanah already asked that and say that Allah b'makhshabato b'tishrei, but Hashem didn't actually create the world until Nisan, and that's how He solved the problem. And that might be reinforced by the fact that we say on Rosh Hashanah, that today is the conception of the world, but not necessarily the birth of the world, because it was only conceived on that day, it wasn't actually created on that day. Alright, then the Gemara continues and says, Rabbi Huda's opinion, Rabbi Huda Omer Liprakim, he sees it on Intervals. What's an interval? In order for you to see it, that you make a bracha. bar Abba, that's up to thirty days. Which there's a discussion as to whether the thirty days applies only to items that are static, like the Yamagadol, Gadol, or does it also apply to other phenomena like lightning and thunder? So many believe that lightning and thunder, or other items like that, are independent of this because one lightning bolt that you see now is different than a lightning bolt that you see next time, and therefore you don't need to wait thirty days because it's a new phenomenon each time. Never you can make a bracha in each instance. Whereas by a mountain or by a body of water, which is static, those, you can only make a bracha every 30 days because that's it's enough time that it's elapsed that so it's considered to be a new unit of time because a chodesh or a month is considered to be a significant unit of time. In Allah, a week, a month, and a year are considered to be a significant amount of time but 30 days is considered to be enough to have elapsed by which a person then would feel or have an emotional experience again and never you'd make a bracha it's similar to tearing Kriya over Churban whereby you only tear Kriya if you haven't been there in 30 days. Although even within those phenomena like lightning and thunder, we would assume that if it's in the same storm, or the rainbow was in the same storm, that you wouldn't make a new brocha, you'd have to have a new storm or something new that took place before you could make a new bracha, we wouldn't say in every lightning bolt that you make a bracha. Someone who sees the Euphrates River from this location of the bridge by Bavel, then you can make the bracha of that is Hashem created the world, because Prat is one of the four rivers that's mentioned that come out of Gan Eden, and the assumption was that only if it was in its original state could you make the bracha, and so they had a misora that below that point from Gishra to the Bavel, there were already man-made canals, or alterations in the flow of the river, so you couldn't make a bracha. But above that point, the river was still in its original flow, and therefore you could make the bracha of Oseh Maseh Breshit. Ba'idnon, today, parsai, that the Persians have changed it again, meaning they've now changed or moved the water flow even by Gishur de Bavel, then only mi the le'el, only from the area of Beishabur and upwards of the river is it still in its original state and there you can make the brocha. Amar, dekira No, it's not from Beshabur, but rather from this location via Ihi above where it's still in its original flow. Ami Rami Baraba ro'eh diglat. one who says the... Chidekel or the Tigris River, Agishra de Shvistano from the bridge of Shvistano Umer Baruch the same reason from that point upwards the Chidekel or the Tigris is still in its original state. It's one of the four rivers that's mentioned in Gan Eden. My Chidekel, why is the Diglat the Tigris called Chidekel? Khadim Its waters are sharp and swift. Now Rashi explains that they are Chadim. It's harifim whether that means swift, or that means that they are very potent, they weigh less, light, he takes it literally, not that they're moving fast, but rather that it's lighter type of water. The Grah, on the other hand, sees this as being something positive in terms of its impact on the individual, that it makes a person chad vikal, makes a person sharper and quicker to understand. And my prat, where does the word prat come from? parim virabim, that it's water's, Either cause people to be fruitful and multiply, or its waters itself are fruitful and multiply, which means that they waters expand and come up and grow and do not diminish. Rava says that the people of Mechuzah are so sharp because they drink the waters from the Tigris, and the reason that they are freckled or have red spots on them is Mishum is because they have intercourse during the day that might have to do with something that we spoke about a number of times in Nida, which is that what a person sees at the time of conception, according to the Gemara, has impact on that which is produced. Therefore, if they're having intercourse and conception happens during the day, when the sun's out and it's light out, that might be what he's trying to imply here. By the night, the reason that their eyes either wander or blink is afel. they grow up in very dark houses in order to not be hot and to keep it shade and keep it cool, they don't allow a lot of light into the house. And because of that, when they come outside, their eyes are always blinking or moving around because they're not used to that type of bright light. <speaking> On rain, you make the bracha. <speaking> is that really true? That the bracha that you make when you see rain is a tov and Or a brighter. When you make a brocha on Geshemim, it's Mishyatzaa Chatan Kala. When the Chatan goes to greet the Kala, as Rashi explains over here, that means that there's sufficient water that's already pooling on the ground. Never when a drop falls into the pool of water, it bounces up. And then when it bounces up, the next rain driver comes down meets the one that's bouncing up from the pool of water. And that's what it means, Chatan Kala, which means it's a significant amount of rain. And what brocha do you make? Amar The bracha you make is, We give thanks to you, Hashem, for every drop of rain that you brought down for us. Rabbi and Rabbi Yochanan continues that bracha with the following, Even if our mouths were full of song like the ocean, We would not have sufficient means by which to give thanks to you, Hashem. he's quoting Nishmat, And that's why it says because it continues, So it's picking up again, and then, he says ad tishtaq vaimis he continues a khamela fangle fim revvo to mimato boche sitim abutaim imano mi tsaim gautano ashamdu keni bita vadin piditano brav zantano bisavakil kautano mi khervit zoutan mi dever mi latitano mekhale imraim minemarin mi dilitano ad henu zruno rakma khavlo zruno khasadaqa altit to shenash dehamdu keno lanatsa halkena to banura khuni shamash na fakto bpenos va shon shamt feno hein heim yodubi varkhuv yashuv va khuv bi faru va yriu yromon waraitul so that's what he says. You say until there, and then you complete it. Baruch Hashem rov haodot. says below Just on most of the things we want to give you thanks, but not everything we want to give you thanks. ema hakela Better to say the great God who we all thanks to. So Amar once again, RaPapa comes in and says, We should say both of them. Rov the which is the way that we structure the bracha. So you say, kel Rovodot. So as the Gemara already points out, that Robodot has a deficit in it because of the fact that it only speaks about the rove and not all. So the solution there is to say, kel But once you're saying kel that dismisses the explanation of rov to mean just the majority, not all. But rove then means rebui, many. And therefore, kelloodot would speak about a single thank you. But rovodot says that you deserve many, many thanks. And so therefore, what we're trying to do is have the word rove not mean majority, but rather mean plentiful or many. And the way we do that is by associating it with kel. And therefore, the deficit in kelloodot is made up by rove. And the deficit in rove is made up by kel, and therefore bringing them together Actually gets you a better brocha, and that's why we combine them, and that's what Republic does over here. Which is either a conclusion of Ropa Odaot, Vekela or the version that we use today, which Ramban also brings down, which is Kel Ropa Whereas there are Rishonim, like the Balamor, the Ritva, and others that say that Ropopa's Hilkach Nimr is the brocha of Modim, and Ilupinu shira meaning that's both the bracha of Rav and the addition of Rabbi Yochanan, but that doesn't change the closing of the bracha, and the closing of the bracha should just be a kela so Now we have a problem because we have this bracha, and we have the Mishnah telling us that the bracha is a tova ametiv. Elikasha. So what are we going to do about that? Lokasha. Hadashama Mishma. Hadashama Mishma. Depends if he heard that it rained. Or he saw that it rained. The Shama Mishma hainu b'sorot tovot. The says, wait a minute. HaShama Mishma, that you're going to make a Tova Metiv when you hear about it, that's already included in another category in the Mishnah, which is good news. When you hear good news, you make a bracha. it's not a tovot, omeher, baruch Tova Metiv. On good news, you make a Tova Metiv. So why do you need a separate bracha by the rain? Both of them are a case where you witness the rain. Lokasha, That's not a problem. HaDa'at hapurta, the Tova. Depends if it rained a lot or it rained a little bit. The way that Rashi explains it over here is that if it rains a little bit, then you say the bracha of a modim If it rains a lot, then you say the bracha of a tov Although the ritva over here explains just the opposite and says that if there's a lot of rain, like the Gemara said before, she had say Chatanikrat then you say the Bracha Modim, because that's what the Rov hotov goes on in the great amount of rain that's coming. Whereas if it just rains a little bit, then you say, Bracha Tahamotov Now obviously that will have implications on the remainder of the Gemara. According to Rashi, is both cases is a case where there's a lot of rain. That's when you make both brachot. And the question of which bracha you make is a question of whether it they if you have land, then you make a bracha of a tova metiv. How the late they are, if you don't have land, then you make the bracha of a modim So according to Rashi, tova means that you can make a bracha of a va metiv. And lo kasho, when you make a tova meitiv? when you have land. How the late they are, if you don't have land, then you make the bracha of a modim and achnulach. But the implications of that are, that means that both when there's a little amount of rain, or a lot of rain, if you don't own land, you're going to make the bracha of a modim The Ritva is going to be just the opposite. Explanation of Hava: The Tzuba means that unless there's a lot of rain, you can't say either of the brachot. Both bracha modim and aknulach and tovah meitiv require a lot of rain. And the difference between them is whether you own land or don't own land. If you own land, then you can make a bracha of tovah meitiv. If you don't own land, you make the bracha of modim and aknulach. So according to both Rashi and the Ritva, in the end. It has to be that the Toba is referring to when you have a lot of rain and you own land. The only question is, if you don't own land, then you say, Modim Is that only true when you have a lot of rain? That's the view of the Ritva. Or is that even true when you have a small amount of rain, which is the view of Rashi? But either way, the Gmarist asks, it Someone has land, they make the bracha of a tov How come it's only when you have land that you make a bracha of a Tov HaMetiv? don't we have a Braytov? It is somewhat in our mission as well, which is bana Khadash, chadash, b'kanak elim chadashim. If someone builds a new house, or acquires new utensils, Omer, Baruch, Shechianu, Vikimano, So then you make the Baruch of Shechianu. Now the Grod takes out the remainder of this gear, so here, If it's his and others, then Omer, Tov, You make the Baruch of Meitiv. says, Hallo, Kasha. That's not a problem. How eat? They shoot foot. How They shoot foot. Depends if he has a partner or not. The way that many of the Rishonim learned that you have a partner means literally that you have a partner in the property. Since you have a partner in the property, both of you are beneficiaries, and therefore you say a tov Rashi says that that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a literal partner in the property, but you have a partner in the benefits that are felt by that which is happening. And therefore other landowners, just like you, are beneficiaries of the rain. Never you can say a tov because it's something that affects you and others equally. And since you're all beneficiaries of this, you can say the brach of a v-a We have a brayta, which has been nichuta, supported brayta, in summary, or the principle thats here is if it's his or he's the beneficiary of the Tova Omer so Barze sign that it benefits him and his friend, whether that literally means you have to be partners in it or whether it means that you are equal beneficiaries of that which happen Omer Baruch ava. It says, is that true? When he doesn't have anybody else along with him, He don't make a bracha of tovah meitiv, don't we have a bride? Amrulei yalda yishto zachar. He finds out that his wife gave birth to a male child, Omer Baruch HaTovah Over there, he's the beneficiary, he's the one who's celebrating. How come he's making a tova mitiv? It's just him. His wife also is celebrating the Nechel HaVzachar because she also wanted a male child. So the two of them together make the bracha of tova Metiv. The implications of that are, and what is eloquently true, is that if it was a daughter that was born, you'd make a brach of shechianu and not a tova metiv. Tashma, so let's see, over here, metaviv who your show. His father passes away, and he's inheriting him. Baruch Dayana emet. First he says, Baruch Dayana emet, which is the first news that he heard that his father passed away. Therefore, the proper or appropriate brach for that is Diana. HaMet. afterwards, Omer Baruch HaTov metiv. Over the Yerusha that he's getting. But once again here, he's the only recipient of the Yerusha. So why is he making Bracha Tova Metiv? He has other brothers that are inheriting with him, and therefore there's more than one beneficiary, and that's why he can make a Bracha of Atova Now that Bracha of Atova in that case, or Shechianu in the case where it only fell to him, is only true where he didn't have any awareness of the Yerusha that was coming. It was sudden or a surprise to him, then he makes the Bracha. But if he knew that his parents had that wealth and that he was expecting to get that Yerusha, then you don't make a bracha on it because it's not something that came as a surprise. Or you make a bracha of Tob-Metiv because there's a certain amount of simcha that needs to be engendered in order to make such a bracha. If you change wines, then you don't need to make a new bracha. Shinu if you change the place where you're drinking, you need to make a new bracha. So if you take out a new barrel of wine or a new type of wine, you don't need to make another bracha. If you change the location where you are, you need to make new Borei Priyagofen. It's true that when you have new bottles of wine or new barrels of wine, you don't need to make a new bracha. That's the bracha Borei Priyagofen. You do say a bracha of Hathom of And again here, you're just drinking new wine. Why is it that you're getting Tov HaMetiv? You're the only one who's benefiting from it. It's not drinking alone. He's drinking with others. And therefore, there are other beneficiaries to this new wine that's coming up. And therefore, you make a Tov HaMetiv. And that's what Tosafot codifies the Aloha, that you only make a bracha of Tov ve-metiv when there are others drinking the wine along with you. And that's why if you have a new fruit, you make a bracha of shechianu both because of the fact that it's a seasonal item, and therefore the appropriate bracha, as well as the fact it's a personal benefit, it's not something that generally is shared. The Rahn brings, in the name of the right vote, that this does not only have application by wine, but it also has application by bread and by basar. When you have riboy basar, riboy uh, yilechem, when these are the eker part of the meal, then those items where there's new items that are brought out, then you would make a broch of a tovah Metiv. You can see in the Balea Tosophon, they disagree with that, and they dispel that notion, but they say, <laughs> only by wine, which has two aspects to it, the side, that it has a satiating factor to it, and it causes happiness. That's where you make a brach of a tovah but not with Basar V'leche. Then there's a machlok between the brothers, the Rashbam and the Rabbeinu Tam, as to whether the next wine that you bring out has to be better. The Rashbam believes that you have to have an upgrade in the wine in order for it to be a bracha tov mitiv. But if the wine is the same level, or a lower level of wine, then there's no reason to make a bracha v'tov v'metiv, the the no because there's no added simcha to the situation. On the other hand, the Rabbeinu Tam believes that even if the new wine isn't as chasuv. As long as it's not a big degradation from the original wine, but it's a new wine, the addition of the wine itself is the Simcha, and that's enough of a reason to make a tova Metiv, even though there's no upgrade in the quality of the wine. There is a Machloket amongst the Rishonim. If for whatever reason you need to make a Bari on the next wine, which is a different wine, do you also then make a Bracha of a tova Metiv on it? That might have to do with the question as to what the nature of the brokhova is. Is it just a modified nenin? And because you already made a Bori Piyagofen, you can't make it again, so a Tova is this modified Birka denenin. That's the case, then clearly, if you have to make another Bori Piyagofen, you're not going to make a Tova Metiv, because you don't make two Birka Danenin on a single object. On the other hand, if you believe that Birka Toba Metiv is really a Bruch of Shevach V'hoda'ah to Hashem, then in that case, it might be that even if you have to make a new Bori Piyagofen on the second wine, you would still make a Brokh of a Tova because not only are you making the Birka denenin, but the addition of this new wine, especially if it's an upgraded wine, also requires an additional bracha of Shevach Vodah. And that may also be influential as to whether you can make a tovim after you've already drank the wine. Meaning that if it's a Birgad Anenin, it's Koloch has to be done before you drink the wine. If it's a birkat Shevach Vodah, there's not necessarily a necessity to have it be over the Asiatan. And therefore you might be able to say it even after you've already had a sip of the wine. Although the Shai and Kofain Hei Otved points out that even according to those that believe that it's Shevach Vodah Da, the mere fact that you're making a Borei goffin over here detaches it from the previous wine. And by having the detachment from the previous drinking, by definition, you can't make a Tova Metiv, because a is all a relative bracha, or an association between two different wines, or the Reboi If you make a Borei goffin that already separates it from the original wine, and therefore, even according to those that think it's birkat Sheva chodah, you also would not say it when you have the Bracha of Borei Goffin Although there, in Old Gimel, he has a big chiddush that on the night of the Seder where you have the Arba Koso, if you change the wine in the second coast, even though you're making a new Borei Guffin over there, the reason you're making a Borei Guffin over there is because it's a separate mitzvah, not because you're separating it from the original drinking. In that case, maybe you should be able to make a Tova Metivh, even though you've made a Borei guffin. Okay, we're going to stop here by the two dots on the bottom of Nun